Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm Jem Daduchu, and what we're doing this time round is Battlestar Galactica. Now, this is an example of an episode that was actually suggested online because I got lots of feedback from people saying, give us more Warhammer. That's why occasionally every, I don't know, six weeks, two months-ish, there's a Warhammer episode. Don't want to overload it with that. That's not the only thing I want to talk about. And I've had other suggestions as well. And this is another one. It's like, ooh, good idea. I'll give it a go. So shout out to The Limey on Twitter. <laughs> really hope that's not your real name. But yes, come at me on Twitter. I'm at Jem Daduchu, happy to hear your suggestions. Would love to get your thoughts and your feedback. You know, we can see numbers of downloads, so we know generally what tends to do well and what doesn't, but also actually having human feedback. Really like that episode, or I never thought of that that way. I'm going to say the one that I was most worried about, my episode about statues, and I had a number of people come back, not screaming and shouting at me, but saying, you made some really good points. It made me look at things a little differently. I realized the situation's complex. Good. Excellent. That was the idea. I wasn't trying to pick a particular side or try to pretend that terrible people in the past are suddenly good. So <laughs> you, ha you have the limey to thank for this one. But Battlestar Galactica is a really good thing to talk about, because if you like, it's one of these things that shows you the history of pop culture. It shows you how the media reacts to trends, but also when we look at the reboot, we get to look at how science fiction is always holding up a mirror to what's going on now and not what's going on in the future. Whoa, this is heavy. Lots of fun stuff to talk about here. Let's go back to the invention of Battlestar Galactica. And to do that, you have to look the year before in the cinemas, movie theaters. And there was this little-known film called Star Wars that came out. I felt a great disturbance in the Force. Now, today it's called Star Wars A New Hope, but let's be clear, in 1977 it didn't have a little subheader, but that was added later. So you had Star Wars come out, you all know what that is, you all know it was huge. But what that meant was everybody else went, oh, science fiction's hot. Now, generally, science fiction was seen very much as B-movie material. The second film, the cheaper film, very few people went to the cinema to see a science fiction movie. If you like something like Planet of the Apes. Don't 
Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! Or 2001 A Space Odyssey are the exception that prove the rule. There are huge amounts of very bad science fiction movies from the 50s and 60s and early 70s that are cheap, and basically there's a reason why it was such a surprise that Star Wars was such a hit. But once it did, well, if something's worth doing... It's worth ripping off and doing again and again and again. Get your stinking trike off me, you damn dirty ape! And so we got more movies. For example, they dug out the very popular in the early 20th century Flash Gordon to create the most camp sci-fi movie ever with a killer queen soundtrack to it. Oh, well... But it's one of these things where if you look at the original serial from the 1930s had this sort of rolling credits at the beginning, which Star Wars ripped off? It made complete sense to do Flash Gordon again. It just, it wasn't. I mean, people remember it now and it was remembered for its very campy stuff and lines from the Queen track that were taken from the movie like Gordon's Alive and Flash, Flash, I love you, but we only have 14 hours to save the Earth. Something like that. Flash, I love you, but we only have 14 hours to save the Earth. I have no idea what Greg's going to be doing now. Gordon's alive. I'm sure he's going to go crazy with sound effects. Oh, no, it's another wave of fighters. We're outnumbered. Oh, no, we're not. Stand by, my Hawkman! little sound clips and things like that as we go through these various films. Greg, I hope you're having fun. It's even worse than I thought it would be. <laughs> this is the weird thing. I can only anticipate in my head what you're actually going to hear as the finished product. It's very strange. So you get something like Flash Gordon. Now, that didn't come out till 1980. That came out a few years later. And you had some very cheap knockoffs, things like Battle Beyond the Stars, which was basically the Seven Samurai or Magnificent Seven using cheap kits from everything that they could grab and sort of quickly cobble together a movie that you could see in the cinema. And there were loads, loads more. But then you get to TV, which has a very different rhythm to movies. A movie can take months, to, well, always takes months to shoot and put together, and then you add the special effects. So it can take an entire year from the time you start rolling the cameras to having a final edit with all the music put in, all the special effects, and so on and so forth. Now, if you're making a weekly TV show, even if it's a drama, you do not have that time. You do not have that luxury to be able to produce stuff at that level and that budget, which is a problem because people have now seen how far special effects have gone with Star Wars. That's no moon. It's a space station. That, what do we do next? So they dug deep and they came up with Flash Gordon. Gordon's alive! You had another situation where people dug deep and went, well, if there's Flash Gordon, there's this other very similar kind of space adventurer from the 1930s called Buck Rogers. And indeed, in the late 1970s, we got a Buck Rogers reinvention with modern special effects, or at least modern special effects from the 1970s. In a freak mishap, Ranger 3 and its pilot, Captain William Buck Rogers, are blown out of their trajectory into an orbit which freezes his life support systems and returns Buck Rogers to Earth 500 years later. And that was a huge hit. Now, for the record, 
I remember seeing Flash Gordon. I remember seeing Buck Rogers. I remember seeing Battlestar Galactica. I don't actually remember seeing the original Star Wars. I was old enough. I think I might have even been taken to it, but I'm too young to remember it. I do remember seeing Empire Strikes Back in the cinema, though. You then got Glenn A. Larson, who is a giant of 70s and 80s TV. You keep seeing Glenn A. Larson's name pop up on so many classic child-friendly TV shows of the 70s and 80s. Things like, well, Battlestar Galactica, yes, but how about Magnum P.I., Knight Rider? Hey, buddy. Welcome back. Thank you, Michael. It's certainly good to be back. I mean, these were, if, if you were a kid of that era, Glenn A. Larson sort of wrote an awful or produced an awful lot of TV shows that really did sort of define your childhood. And also, almost all of them have amazing theme tunes as well, which obviously we can't play the whole things here, you know, sort of like rights and all that kind of stuff. But again, hopefully Greg stuck in some stuff as a bit of nostalgia juice for you there. So, yes, yeah, so Glenn A. Larson created from scratch the idea of Battlestar Galactica, but it's clearly heavily influenced by Star Wars. And indeed, there's even been some legal actions between Battlestar Galactica and George Lucas, a feeling that some stuff is just simply too similar. I'm going to argue that it's clearly inspired by, but there's actually even more similarities between the 70s Buck Rogers and the 70s Battlestar Galactica. So what we've got is a story that, yes, it's sort of like Star Wars, but also it's kind of taken from the Bible as well. We've basically got Exodus in space, because what happens is there are these human colonies, and they are sneak attacked by these machines called the Cylons. And all the planets are kind of destroyed, and therefore the last remnants of humanity have to get on board various spaceships and just head out into deep space to escape the Cylons, but to try and find the lost tribe of Earth. Even if you didn't go to Sunday school, surely some of this sounds familiar. So clearly they're sort of like riffing from one of the greatest stories books ever. The Bible is chock full of whether you want to believe that they're real or parables or whatever. The reason why the Bible has been around so long is it's got these really vivid stories in them. So, so why not do a version of Exodus? Now, for the record, there is no actual sort of religious iconography going on, at least in the original Battlestar Galactica. And what it is, is just... Tune in next week for this exciting thing. But that's not the way it was set up. It was originally set up to be a two-part Battlestar Galactica movie. So a lot of money was spent on it. At the time, it was one of the most expensive TV productions ever. And they were given the time to properly edit it and come up with some music and so on and so forth. It was an event. Problem was, it was such a big event and it went down so well that you had the TV stations and the TV network in America going, ah, well, let's, let's turn it into a show. And they simply didn't have, most importantly, the time to do it properly. So what you've got is quite often, even as a kid, I noticed this, the dogfights between the Cylons and the humans in their Viper spaceships, it was the same one. <laughs> it's just like, maybe voiced over with some slightly different words or whatever, but it's like, yeah, there's that manoeuvre again. I recognise that, because all they had time to do was use, in essence, their existing stock footage of space battles. And so off it went, and it was 
hugely successful, but hugely expensive. And it kind of tangled in on itself because of production issues. So it was reset to Battlestar Galactica 1980, where actually what happens is, oh, sorry, the thing I haven't said. So humans go off in lots of these little spaceships, but they have one, in essence, space aircraft carrier with them. The Galactica, which is a Battlestar classified military space vehicle, is really an aircraft carrier in space. It's an amazing piece of design. It just looks big and mean. And even though you, you know, it's, it's similar to a Star Destroyer in the sense of sort of, it's sort of in, incredibly intricate model work, but it just, it looks awesome. And it has these big hangers on either side of the main hull, which is where the Viper spacecraft fly in and out. So yes, that's why it's called Battlestar Galactica, because the Galactica is keeping all of humanity safe as they keep being attacked. In essence, the series was a little bit like going back to Star Trek, where you had the story of the week. You had a beginning, middle and end done. You don't need to have seen last week's episode. That's kind of irrelevant. That's what we've got with the TV series. It then got all, as I said, tangled up in terms of production. So what do they do with this Battlestar Galactica 1980? <gasps> they find Earth. They get there and they turn up at Earth. In 1980, which it was being filmed basically in 1979 and 1980. In other words, to keep production low, all the adventures were happening on Earth and they could now shoot them wherever they wanted to. And they could use again the stock footage because the idea was they realized that if everybody lands on Earth, the Cylons are going to follow them there. So the Galactica has to keep heading off sort of to lure the Cylons away and they'll sort of rendezvous again at some point in the future. But of course, a few of the Cylons end up on planet Earth and so on and so forth. I remember seeing Battlestar Galactica 1980 for the first time years later, and I didn't even know it existed as a show because funnily enough, if you like Star Wars, you don't want to see something that isn't even close to Back to the Future. You know, those are two different types of sci-fi. And admittedly, it came out way before Back to the Future. But the point is, I remember watching it going, well, this is a mess. And it turned out that's what everybody in 1980 thought too. So then it died. It's gone. Okay. And, and basically science fiction in TV land really did just kind of die a death. Apart from like Doctor Who that just sort of lasted on into the late 1980s and then died but was resurrected in the early 2000s. That's basically what happened with Battlestar Galactica. For years, some of the cast members, Glenn A. Larson and others, were trying to recreate Battlestar Galactica. They knew it was popular. They knew there was a huge fan base there, but it never quite gelled until we get to 2003 and we get this complete redesign. And this is what the Limey's talking about, because I remember... I was in a hotel with my wife. We were just sort of away for the weekend. And it just happened to be a trailer for it on TV. I knew, I knew nothing about it. But I remember it as a kid. But what I found interesting is my wife, then girlfriend, looked at it and went, that looks kind of interesting, which is not something she generally says about sci-fi. And it's like, okay, well, we'll give it a go. And so we started with, again, it started off with a two-part movie. And it led into a number of series. And the quality was huge. In essence, what's out at the moment that's like it is a bit like The Expanse, in the sense that, yes, both of them are in space, but first and foremost, they're dramas, and they're worried about the sort of human interactions, the politics of humanity, the morality, the sort of tough situations. It's about the writing, not about the ray guns, if you like. Lord Marshall's over. Over. When did it start? I don't know. But they've been found guilty on all counts. 
She's going to execute them both for murder and treason. I guess a little bit like Star Trek, but the filming, again, using that kind of vibe of an aircraft carrier, everything was gritty and grimy and kind of militaristic, and it covered some really big topics as they went along. The other thing, which we saw in the kind of making of and the sort of the sizzle reel, if you like, which is what got my wife and I excited about it, was they were saying that when it came to the actual dogfights, they went, we wanted it to look like it's actual reportage, like there's actual cameras there. And if you look at actual footage from war zones, people don't know exactly where the tanks are going to be or the planes are going to fly overhead. And so you sort of see in the distance a ship come into view, like a Viper, and then it kind of zooms in as if the cameraman sort of like focus, finally focusing in on the actual action. And it gave this kind of gritty realism to something that's about as unrealistic as you could possibly get, as once again, you have this idea of, you know, you've got the human colonies, they've been blown to pieces by the Cylons, and so they head off to try and find Earth whilst they're being chased by the Cylons. Only this time round, there are some Cylons that look completely human, and so they're like infiltration units, which brings it a whole other edge to it. Really, really interesting idea which leads to philosophical conversations about, you know, what is human, you know, what has the right to live and die. Come on to all that in a little bit later. But it was an incredible series. Really, really loved it. But then, of course, how are they going to end it? As I said, the original series kind of just fizzled out and we ended up having this incredibly dumb 1980 thing. But actually, to be fair, with the original series of the new version of Battlestar Galactica, which sort of finished around about 2008, it stuck the landing. It had a really good ending. Some people went, eh, but it, it was, a, it was I'm going to say now, a satisfying ending. It, it, no doubt it was satisfying. It may not have been quite what your ending was, but it was really good. Problem was, it got so much attention again, and they'd clearly finished the story. There was a huge excitement, like, can we do more? Can we do more? And so you then get this prequel series called Caprica, which my wife and I, well, we love the first, you know, the, the, the first run, so let's give Caprica a go. And I was a little bit skeptical when I heard some of the ideas. It's sort of like, well, there's this girl, and she's going to be sort of like turned into the AI, which is going to be the Cylons. It's like the creation of the Cylons. It's like, mm, I'm not sure I want to know that the Cylons are basically built on the memories of a angsty teenage girl. That doesn't, I'm not, nothing against angsty teenage girls. Mom, Dad, am I ugly? Where'd you get a stupid idea like that? Craig Hoffman. Craig, uh, Craig Hoffman said that? Well, he's a sharp kid, you might be ugly. <laughs> but it's sort of like, that doesn't feel right in terms of the tone of the rest of it. And really, they just didn't know what to do with Caprica. They had great cast, they had some great ideas, they didn't quite know how to execute them, and fundamentally it wasn't really Battlestar Galactica anymore. And, you know, sometimes you get these kind of prequely things that work well, and sometimes you don't. And on this occasion they did try, but unfortunately they just didn't stick the landing. And I can't remember if they even got to finish Caprica, because my wife and I gave up on it, I think, in Season 2. We did give it a fair swing, but it just, no. No, it, it wasn't nearly as good as the original. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. To actually start the conversation about the morality and philosophy in Battlestar Galactica, it's actually good to go back to the granddaddy, at least in America, of the sci-fi TV shows, Star Trek. The original Star Trek, you know, Captain Kirk, Spock, all that kind of good stuff. Gene Roddenberry created something which, in essence, was like, this is what perfect politics, perfect foreign policy would look like. Obviously, it was created in the backdrop of things like the Civil Rights Movement and the Vietnam War and anti-war protests. So America was painfully aware when Star Trek was being broadcast that America wasn't quite getting it right all the time. And that's putting it politely. So what we have is kind of a gung-ho captain, but somebody who is actually trying to come up with peaceful solutions. Khan, you've got Genesis, but you don't have me. You are going to kill me, Khan. You're going to have to come down here. You're going to have to come down here. Who is actually trying to negotiate. It is always worth remembering that the USS Enterprise, unlike Battlestar Galactica, is an exploration vessel first. It is not a military craft brimming with weapons. It does have weapons, but actually, I don't want to get too technical, but for any kind of ship, be it spaceship or actual ship on the ocean of that size, it's incredibly lightly armed and armoured. Whereas something like the Battlestar Galactica, that's bristling with guns, same as a Star Destroyer in Star Wars. So it was trying to sort of have this kind of peaceful coexistence sort of argument going on with it. And it was saying that, you know, this is ultimately what we should aspire towards. With Battlestar Galactica, the new 21st century version, they very much, like everything else, decided to go in the opposite way and say, let's look at what's bad in the world and sort of like talk it through. Perhaps the point where I realized that this was really coming through in the writing is there is a scene I'm not going to go into the technicalities, partly because I can't remember half of them, but partly because if you haven't seen it, you will ha won't have an idea what I'm talking about. But basically, 
I mentioned earlier that there are these infiltration units that look like us and talk like us. Some of them don't even know that they're Cylons, but if you kill one, it kind of downloads its memories into another copy of itself on a Cylon battleship. So what they were able to set up is basically a virus, so that if they kill this infiltration unit, the virus is sent back to the evil Battlestar, the Cylon warship, and that virus will wipe out every single Cylon there. And that type of infiltrator, you'll see, get the same person coming back again and again and again, which is quite clever. So you could have multiple deaths of, a, of an individual. They could keep coming back again and again, but this is going to stop all that. So in other words, this means that they create an important blow for humanity against the robots. Yay! But as somebody pointed out, the deliberate eradication of an entire group, that's genocide. I've heard these arguments before. It was a long time ago. Mankind has evolved since then. So it's not can we do it? The question is, should we do it? And because these are desperate human beings in a desperate situation fighting a battle for their very existence against an uncaring robot menace, Maybe your answer is, yeah, wipe them out. But if you do, of course, then what's really the difference between you and the Cylons? Because they will wipe you out without even thinking about it as well. So is it a case that you get the victory, but in the process, you're slightly less human? I think that anybody who carries out genocide, it's a very hard argument to call them the good guys. This is a conversation I had with one of my children recently. They were talking about various political situations, both in history and in the current modern world. And they weren't saying it in a naive way about why can't everybody get along, because they were aware that there were all these different opposing political opinions. But he raised the comment, which I've often thought about as well, and it's in some science fiction. It's like, well, if aliens came on planet Earth, would we all unify? And the answer has to be absolutely. The reason why there are arguments on planet Earth right now is because one side sees the other side as either less worthy or, more worryingly, less human, less deserving than you. And that's, if you like, the source of an awful lot of problems. However, if an alien race landed on planet Earth and started threatening us, or maybe not even threatening us, finally we can get all of humanity to agree that we're at least human and those guys have to die. And we probably will carry out some kind of horrific genocide, you know, Presumably the aliens have got better tech than us, you know, and, and all the movies we were always the underdogs, so it's okay to blow one of their massive super ships to pieces, even though there may be just innocent alien gardeners on that ship and, and other things as well. They're not all presumably trying to eat our brains or whatever that particular movies aliens are trying to do to us humans. But yeah, I, I absolutely agree. There can be great unifying factors. If you look at you know, something like World War II, for example, you have countries that traditionally, or in both world wars, generally Britain and France don't get on very well, particularly England and France. There is actually a book called A Thousand Years of Annoying the French to point out that for about a thousand years off and on, England and France have been fighting with each other. And the rare exceptions were the two world wars, where all that past enmity, and there's loads of it. To give you an idea, some British soldiers were landed in France next to a statue commemorating Napoleon's least 
theoretical attempt to invade Britain. Why are we fighting to keep these people safe? They wanted us dead a hundred years ago. But it was all put to one side. And so something like World War II, it's not often that you're going to get democratic free market America allying with Soviet Union, Russia and Stalin. And indeed, as soon as the war was over, they suddenly got the Cold War. But there you go. There's an example where you can look past all kinds of differences if there's a common dangerous foe. So that was the point in the series where it's like, yeah. And, you know, leading to the question, is genocide ever justified? Now, that's not actually a conversation that's had literally in the TV show, but it's one of the ones where it just, it's a sign of a good drama is it sits with you afterwards. You start mulling over the plot points or even the moral choices of the characters afterwards. Now, I'm going to say again, I'm not entirely sure that genocide is ever justified in any situation. However, maybe in a situation in the situation that people in Battlestar Galactica are in possibly I don't know love to get your thoughts on that the limey over to you but the other thing that was happening in the early 2000s and like I said so you get something like Star Trek with the backdrop of things like civil rights in Vietnam the thing that was happening in the early 2000s of course was the war on terror which really has gone very quiet because of COVID now Interestingly, there were forces at the beginning of COVID in Afghanistan and famously got pulled out in 2021 to much news coverage and so on and so forth. So those wars haven't finished. There are still occasional terrorist attacks. But if you like the huge spectacular attacks of the early 2000s, you obviously got 9-11 in in America. You got 7-7 bombing in London. There was this, the Madrid bombing on their train as well. That caused a huge amount of death. There's been a number of foiled attempts. Clint Eastwood did a movie about it. Basically, these American tourists, some of them military trained, managed to stop a guy sort of like going crazy with a machine gun in a train in France. So all this stuff sort of was going on, plus you know, the huge wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So with all that going on, I found it stunning when there was a conversation Again, a bit like the genocide kind of thing about should we carry out suicide attacks on the Cylons? If one of our people can take out an entire warship of the Cylons, we can sustain those levels of losses and the Cylons can't. That's a pretty cheap and easy way to really hurt the enemy. And that had to be the kind of thoughts in the back of somebody like Osama bin Laden's mind. Let's face it, for the sake of 20 people... 20 plane tickets and a bunch of box cutters, which are simple knives. That's how they managed to carry out the 9-11 terror attacks. Now, those are appalling and awful. Please don't think in any way I'm sort of justifying them. But from a purely how much did it cost us in 10 terms of men and materials versus how much did it cost you in terms of damage? It was one of the most disproportionately successful attacks in, in like military terror whatever you want to call it, modern history. So awful, awful thing to think about. And yet in this show, which, yes, literally has sort of like dogfights with robots, spaceships, which you might think, well, that sounds kind of dumb. There are these very serious questions being asked. And if you think about it for a moment, you know, there is the classic conversation, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. And there's the really horrible one from Russia going, you're not really a revolutionary until you can throw a hand grenade into a kindergarten. Awful phrase, by the way. But these things are genuine conversations that have been had in various nefarious rooms around the world pretty much throughout the 20th century. 
Now, the thing about terrorism is it is largely a 20th century creation. Now, don't get me wrong. There have been assassinations way back into the, the dawn of time. But if you think about it, let, let, let's take something that really isn't controversial. People aren't going to get upset about. Let's talk about the, the Roman invasion of Britain. I'm pretty sure nobody's going to get upset about that one. I beg your pardon. How very day. Now, clearly, there was violence there, and clearly there were there were sort of like clashes, you know, famously with Boudicca and things like that. But ultimately, the Romans won, and the Romans got to rule Wales, England, and little chunks of southern Scotland. That's basically what they got to do. Now, if you look at things like you know, what's happened during the Arab Spring throughout the whole of the Middle East, or large chunks of the Middle East. Look at Syria. I mean, this all started 10 years ago, if not earlier, and yet it sort of evolved into this super bloody civil war. How? Why didn't it, why wasn't it just sort of like a clean sweep for one of the sides? Same thing in Vietnam, same things in Korea. You know, Vietnam and Korea were fundamentally civil wars that basically had lots of other countries getting involved in them. And the, the, the answer to this is, particularly if you look at the Arab Spring, there's no way with these sort of like dictatorships who managed to suppress things like the newspapers and the news that they, under a normal year, let's say in 1989, Jim says picking it out of a hat, there's no way that they could have been able to organize. But with social media and mobile phones, cell phones, suddenly these people were able to create groups and communicate and, and organize. And that's what allowed the Arab Spring to happen. But then if you look at like terrorism that's happened in throughout the 20th century, you need the invention of modern explosives. I mean, admittedly, something like TNT dynamite existed in the 19th century as well as the 20th century, but also critically automatic weapons. Because, you know, basically a bunch of a, a small group of highly motivated individuals with just a few cheap AK-47s and just, a, you know, a few pounds of Semtex or whatever it may be can cause huge problems for a government somewhere in the world, where, wherever that may be. Could be Northern Ireland, could be Algeria, yeah, could be Vietnam. Now, all these kind of places have, have had sort of terrorist attacks, or, you know, freedom fighters fighting for their rights. Again, depends on your point of view on these things. And this sort of stuff is covered in a sci-fi show. That is mind-blowing. The last area that I'm going to go into is, is the philosophy. But just before I do, it is always worth remembering. Like I said, you can reach out to me, say hi, let me know how I'm doing. Let me know if this is your kind of episode. But also, if you could please give us a review, tell one other person about it. If you see one of my tweets saying, hey, here's the latest episode, it's about A or B, then please share that one. That would be lovely if you could. So, yeah, that's why I just wanted to say there, just, you know, not costing you anything, but just if you could just spread the love, you know, we could do with the channel growing. Thank you. Right. Back to the philosophy for a moment. So, yes, there, there is. And I've done sort of elements of philosophy in the Matrix episode. But here, once again, we have the conversation about what has the right to exist and, you know, what is consciousness? Because your average computer, your laptop sitting in front of you, can do things better than you. We are now at the point where a computer can play chess better than even a grandmaster. It took a long time. There were a number of chess machines that, you know, had incredible processing power that were still being able to be beaten by Gary Kasparov or whoever. But finally, we're now at the point where the very, very best chess playing computers are basically going to win every time. So, yes, we're at that point with computers. They can calculate complex mathematics for you things like your taxes and stuff like that. 
and they help you connect you to the world. But are they conscious? Are they self-aware? And the answer is no. Clearly, your average laptop isn't. And there's a question of like, well, with animals, are they ever self-aware? And、uh, if you're if you have a conversation with a vegetarian or a vegan, they're they're going to say, yeah, absolutely. But I'm going to say, well, please try and convince me that a crab is self-aware. Probably isn't. We know it isn't. Okay, it's too basic an animal to have this conscious of self-consciousness. Even with humans, it takes us time. There's this wonderful test. If you have a little human, better known as a child, and it's about one year old, that's about the time between one and two we become self-aware. Before that, it's just stuff happening to us, and we're just absorbing it, and we're not quite understanding that we are more in control of our environment than we might think. And the way you do this is just by very carefully. It can't be wet or cold, because they'll notice this immediately. But just if, if you like, get a little bit of soot or something like that, and smudge it on a child's forehead, and put the child in front of a mirror. Now, if it's a let's say a, a, literally a one-year-old baby, it's likely to just stare at itself in the mirror and do nothing. If, however, it's self-aware, let's say it's eighteen months old. It will reckon it'll know it's not another baby in the mirror; it's them in the mirror, and they will see that they got something on their forehead, and they'll rub it off. And that's the way you can tell. And things like chimpanzees can also do that. Take your sticking soot off me, you damn dirty ape! However, I don't think there's any evidence of that in something like a cow, for example. So yeah, I'm not going to go into the whole of that, but but we then come to computers, and there are loads. Of top scientists who say the same thing over and over again: the biggest threat to humanity isn't just things like global warming; it's also AI. Because if AI is connected to the internet and it becomes self-aware, I know this sounds an awful lot like Skynet and Terminator, but that seems to be the basic sort of outcome. Now, lots of people are talking about AI, and actually, what they mean is limited AI. Very clever programs who are very good at this one thing, like picking a holiday for you or playing chess. But they can't also drive your car and know all of Wikipedia and everything else. So you know, fortunately, we're not there yet. But it does seem people are desperate to try and get to proper, full, self-conscious AI. And all you know, basically, all the other scientists are going, "Don't do that. That's a terrible, terrible idea." Because cold logic might well dictate: well, if we get rid of all of humans, there'll be no global warming, and the world will be able to recover. And that's like, well, let's carry out that genocide I mentioned earlier. So, yeah, there's something to the whole Terminator argument there for the health of the globe. Pretty bleak argument at the end, but the whole idea of self-consciousness, conscious awareness, making conscious decisions—we use this term consciousness all the time—and yet consciousness itself is incredibly ill-defined. There are still huge debates in the philosophical community about exactly what we mean by consciousness and what is and isn't knowable consciousness, because sometimes we are victims of our own circumstance. If there's evidence to show that if we're hungry and thirsty, we're actually going to be angrier with people. Even though there's no reason, technical reason to do it, so suddenly now the state of our stomachs is affecting our mental capacity. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. Right, I'm going to leave it there. Slightly more upbeat at the end, but、uh, yeah, I managed to get past human genocide. Yay, Jem!、Um, thanks very much for listening, and as always, hopefully, speak to you soon.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.